good to see you all again. Um, it's been a while, so Roy and I had um, a wonderful time visiting our family in the U.S. Um, so we spent five days in Seattle, seven days with my family in California, and then nine days in Hawaii. And so it went from progressively cold to warm to really nice. Um, and we're back here in Melbourne. Um, but it's been a, a bit of a whirlwind trying to you know, leave every five, seven days, uh, pack, unpack, get settled in. And then, of course, when we came back, um, we had the leadership retreat at Phillip Island, which was nice. And then as soon as that ended on Monday morning, we went to the minister's retreat Monday afternoon. Um, and we came back on Thursday. And so uh, we are almost unpacked, hopefully for the last time for a while. Um, and it's really, really good to see you all again. I have a question for you. How many of you have read The Little Prince? The Little Prince. Okay, I see a few smiles. Um, this is one of my favorite books. I was, it was written by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. And um, I actually studied French literature when I was in uni. Um, but even before that, um, The Little Prince was one of my favorite books because it was a book that actually my dad gave to my mom when they were dating. Um, and they had read it together. And so when Roy and I were dating, I gave it to him and we read it together. Um, and it was his first time. And so one day, Micah will get you a copy and you give it to your girlfriend. <laughs> um, but when I got to uni, uh, at my uni, we had to write uh, a thesis before we graduated. Um, and so I asked myself, what am I passionate enough about to wake up and write a whole book on during my senior year. And I thought, well, what about my favorite, one of my favorite books, The Little Prince? And so I did. So I actually wrote a 76-page book <laughs> about this tiny little book. Um, I think The Little Prince is only like 40 pages um, with pictures. And it's meant to be a children's story, but it's an allegory for adults as well. It's actually a story um, that is very well known. In fact, um, this book, the reason why I wrote my thesis on it, is because it is the second most translated book in the world. What's the first most translated book in the world? The Bible, yes. And we talked about that last year. This is the second most translated book in the world, and my thesis question was, why? Why is this book so popular? And this is the most quoted line from the book. Um, it's, it's actually a character, the fox, that says to... This little prince, now here is my secret, a very simple secret. It is only with the heart that one can see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eyes. And it's a story about a pilot, he's the narrator, who crashes in the Sahara Desert. And he's trying to fix his airplane, and along comes this little boy out of nowhere and says, please, draw me a sheep. And um, the story is, is, a, is a celebration of imagination and of friendship um, over the everyday hustle and bustle of making money, trying to be successful, um, and trying to keep up the pace with everyone else. And so it's a story that truly um, appeals to all cultures and all generations because what it does is because it's in a desert, it takes away all that, it deconstructs, civilization and society and, you know, it doesn't matter because you're in a desert. There's no concept of, you know, what country is this or um, what ethnic group are you from, but it's simply about two individuals who are forming a friendship together. And it's about um, having that time and space that no longer is limited by the constrictions that we often place on each other. And 
the reason why I love this book is because by the end of this book, um, it, you know, there's a lot of emotions um, that kind of you feel as you read this book. It's not just a fairy tale happy ending, but it's a little deeper than that. And um, without giving away the ending, um, the book really kind of makes you pause and ask yourself, what is really important in my life? Am I focusing on the eternal that's invisible? Or am I focusing so much on the visible that actually is temporary? And that's the question that um, I want us to look at a little bit today. Tomorrow, as you know, is Valentine's Day, for those of you who care. <laughs> um, and imagine if on Valentine's Day, you get showered with love, all kinds of expressions of love. But the rest of the 364 days, you get nothing. Valentine's Day is not supposed to be the only day in which you are shown love. It's supposed to be a day that celebrates the love that you already experienced the rest of the year. And today I want to look at the idea that a lot of times we give God perhaps an hour out of the week when we come to church. Perhaps a little bit more than that. But honestly, are we also caught in the trap that the narrator of The Little Prince was in? So busy making a living, so busy building a career, so busy doing this and that, that we have lost the art of building lasting relationships and we have forgotten how to look with our hearts, the invisible and the eternal. And I want to suggest to you that if you feel like you haven't been growing spiritually, if you feel like your soul is as dry as the Saharan desert, and you feel like you're in the same rut, spiritually speaking, than, you know, that you've been in a year ago or two years ago, then I want to suggest to you today that it's because we are not spending that desert time with God. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean necessarily that we have to go away to a literal desert and that we have to have you know months or, or years by ourselves. But what I'm suggesting is that the desert is a metaphor for that quiet, alone time with God. And there's nothing that can substitute that t- private time with God. Small groups is fantastic. Church community is important. But nothing can take the place of that private time with God, which alone can truly bring you that depth of spiritual growth. And I'll talk more about that in a little bit. But I want to share with you um, some... It's, briefly, examples of characters in the Bible who have experienced that desert experience. For example, Mount Sinai. Um, who do you, who can you think of who spent time in Mount Sinai? Moses, I hear whispering. Moses was a man who lived um, about 2000 BC, um, and he spent 40 days in the, in the mountains. Um, and as you can tell, this mountain is, is quite barren. It's not a lush mountain. There aren't streams flowing from it. It's in a desert. Um, but after spending that time on that, you know, deserted mountain alone with God, he's, when he resurfaced finally, his face literally glowed from having been in the presence of God. Imagine if after our time with God, our faces are literally glowing with the love of God. There was also King David. King David was um, the second king of Israel. 
And he actually spent a lot of time, more time than he did on the throne, I feel like, in the wilderness. Because first of all, he was a shepherd. So before he became a king, he spent a lot of time in the wilderness, taking the sheep from place to place, guiding them. And he wrote a lot of psalms because in that time, he was, he had a lot of um, time to himself because the sheep can't talk back. And so he had a lot of time to himself to talk to God and to praise him. And he was very musically gifted. And so he wrote a lot of songs that we have today in the book of Psalms in the Bible. But after he became king, or right before he became king, he also was being chased by King Saul, the first king, because King Saul didn't want David to become the next king. So he tried to kill him. And so for a long time, he spent time hiding in the caves, you know, wandering around the wilderness with his group of people, um, hiding away, being in remote places. And so he, again, he had a lot of time with God. And this cave, the cave of Adjulim, which you can visit today, is one of the caves that, um, that David spent time in. Also, there have been individuals like Elijah. Um, Elijah was a man, a prophet, who several generations after King David um, had a spectacular showdown experience on a mountain called Mount Carmel, where he basically um, was given the opportunity to prove that God is real. And fire came down from heaven um, to prove that God was real. He had this great experience. But after after he has that great experience, and let me just put the little clicker on, here's Mount Carmel. And then he actually accompanied um, King Ahab to Jezreel. But there he got so discouraged by a threat on his life that he then went all the way down to Beersheba, and then he spent a time here in this wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights as well, during which time angels came and gave him food and encouraged him. And finally, God told him, go to Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, and there God sent a wind and fire and earthquake, and then finally a still, small voice, and God communed and talked with Elijah and encouraged him there. Also, John the Baptist in the first century A.D. Uh, spent time in the, in the desert learning his mission in life. And, of course, Jesus also spent 40 days in the desert before he began his public ministry. But it wasn't just a one-off, as I mentioned before. These individuals were constantly in the lifestyle of talking with God. For example, in Luke chapter 5, verses 15 to 16, it says, Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And here's another one. In Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 37, Before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. Later, Simon and the others went out to find him. And when they found him, they said, Everyone is looking for you. Can you imagine Jesus, as busy as he was, with all the crowds of people coming to him for healing, for teaching, etc., he would make sure that he withdrew to a quiet place to pray, to commune with God, to meditate, and prepare himself for what was to come next. The problem is not our ability to connect to God. The problem and the real issue is our availability. God does not ask us for great things in order to experience spiritual growth. He doesn't ask us to climb mountains and conquer dragons in order to make it to the next step. It's not about beating the flesh. No, the secret to spiritual growth is simply this, spending that quiet time with God, 
spending that alone time with God. There's a psalm. This is one of the psalms of David. Psalm chapter 1. It says, a truly happy person, this is the common English version, the truly happy person doesn't follow wicked advice, doesn't stand on the road of sinners, and doesn't sit with the disrespectful. Instead of doing these things, these persons love the Lord's instruction, and they recite God's instruction day and night. They are like a tree replanted by streams of water, which bears fruit at just the right time, and whose leaves don't fade. Whatever they do succeeds. That's not true for the wicked. They are like the dust that the wind blows away. In context, when it says that the ones who are meditating on God's law day and night, that they're successful everything, it's not talking about earthly success, right? I know that immediately our minds are thinking, okay, well, does that mean that if I meditate on God and if I'm spending a quiet time, then you know, I'm going to get a promotion at work and I'm going to meet the perfect man and, you know... No, <laughs> uh, the little prince would say to that, um, grown-ups only think about numbers, and it's time to think about the, in, the eternal. When God says that you're going to have success, he's talking about success in eternal things, success in relationships that are meant to be eternal, relationship with God, success in the ability of our soul to connect to God that leads to eternal life. Right? It's talking about success in that spiritual growth. And so it, it's a true contrast we see here between the wicked who are, are not still. And you know, a lot of times it's difficult to be that tree. Looking at the dandelion seeds, blowing in the wind, thinking, oh man, they're having fun, right? Looks like fun. They're going here and there, carried by the wind. Looks like they're having a blast, living it up. And here I am, right? Stuck. And sometimes as Christians, we might feel that being rooted in the word of God might restrict us. But being rooted in the word of God and spending time with God and having that meditation time and being rooted um, in one place is actually not only providing growth for us, right? But also that, that tree is able to provide fruit that can nourish others, shade that can protect others. So we become useful. And ultimately, the psalmist says, the tree will continue to flourish, whereas... The rest of the shaft will just get blown away by the wind, and they will be no more. And I think that's hard for us when we are seeking a relationship with God. It's hard to say, you know what? I'm not going to get caught up in the business of life. I'm not going to go with everybody else being blown by this and blown by that. And, you know, here's, here's, you know, there's so much to keep up with, right? Not only do you have to keep up with at work, you have to keep up with sports, politics, um, you know, friends' activities. There's this going on, that going on. There's so much in life that demand our time and attention. But to say, I'm going to be right here. I'm going to take time out. And I'm going to make sure that I have given God that time that he deserves to become rooted in the stream of life. You know, a tree doesn't grow overnight. I think one of the challenges also is that we might try having a devotional quiet time for a a few days, a few weeks, but then we don't really feel different. We don't really see the benefit. And so so then before we know, we kind of let it go. But I want to encourage you to be patient you cannot see a growth of a tree overnight. Last year, Christmas, so not this past one, but the one before, Brahman and Daryl had given us a lemon tree. 
And I was so excited because I really wanted free lemons. <laughs> lemons are very expensive at Woolworths and Coles. And so I thought to myself, great, I'm going to have lemons. And so I usually kill things, but I actually managed to keep this plant alive. I'm still waiting for the lemons. <laughs> well, we, we did have one, but it came with the one. Um, so after, after that one, you know, got plucked like nothing else. Because it's a little tree and it takes time to grow. But I'm very impatient and I want my lemons, right? Um, and so my neighbor has one and sometimes a branch comes over to our side. But anyways, and so, you know, a tree takes time to grow because it's meant to be one of those plants that, you know, it's not a perennial plant that, you know, blossoms and dies, you know. It's, it's meant to be something that you, you take care of, you know, you water. You have to also make sure it's planted um, with enough space for the roots to grow. Um, and that might be the problem. Right now it's in a small pot. But, um, you know, that's actually what it means to grow in our spiritual walk. It means being patient. It means recognizing that it takes time to bear fruit of the Spirit. It takes time to be able to, to see and feel the benefits of having that quiet time with God. But just because you can't see it right away doesn't mean you give up. And you know, no one else knows. You know, with flowers and other things, you, you see the outside. And you might think, oh man, that person is so spiritual. But that person might not be spending time with God. And maybe that person is you. You know, if you're not spending enough time with God, and your roots are very shallow. So when the wind comes, when the storm comes, right? It's so easy to be knocked over, to be ripped apart. But nobody would know that. Only you know that. Only God knows that. It's the roots, the hidden part, that's giving strength to that tree, that's soaking up the nutrients from the soil, and that's making that, that tree strong. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, by the way, here's a quote, townspeople have no time to grow, they have no time to waste. A lot of times we think of those times that lead to growth as waste of time, um, but they're times of growth. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, when you pray, go to your room and close the door, pray privately to your father who is with you. Your father sees what you do in private, he will reward you. And when you pray, don't ramble like heathens who think they'll be heard if they talk a lot. Don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Basically, Jesus, in the context of this passage, he's saying, it's not about what you do in public, um, in front of others, that, that really counts, where you get your growth, where you feel that meaning. It's, it's what you do in private that matters. He also says in Lamentations chapter 3, the Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he's young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Sorry, that didn't quite go for that, did it? I think the battery is dead. James, could you do the next one for me? Go to the next one. Go to Joshua. There you go. Joshua chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What does it mean to meditate? God says, meditate on the book of the law. Meditate on the word. What does it mean to meditate? Meditation, its the way I visualize it, it's like putting food in your mouth. 
and chewing it and chewing it. So you can, you know, really taste, you know, the taste of the different things, the spices, the flavors, and the texture. It's like, imagine if you're a master chef judge, right? When they eat something, they don't just eat and swallow, right? They, they, they're tasting it, and they're letting it really be in their mouth. Um, in its fullness, they smell it, right? Before they swallow it, um, and then it goes into your body. And so meditating is like taking a little, little piece. You don't, you don't take a big bite. Take a little bite of the Word of God, and you chew on it. And you taste the flavor and the texture. For example, John chapter 3, uh, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. A lot of people know this verse. Even people who are not Christians know this verse. It's been you know, across signs and it's quite well known. But have you ever meditated on this verse? And I understand why Métis loves Paris so much because I was uh, privileged enough as a French literature major to travel to France. Now, before, um, I had spent a, a, a month in Paris, but the following year, in 2004, I went to Aix-en-Provence. Um, Aix-en-Provence is in the southern part of France, beautiful area. It's where the lavenders are. And it's true that the lavender fields really are postcard perfect. Um, back then, I didn't have a digital camera, so... I don't have any pictures to show you. Um, they're all in scrapbooks back in uh, California in my father's basement. But um, in Aix-en-Provence, one of the first things I did when I got there was seek out Avenue's uh, church. And so that Saturday I went to church, tiny little church in this tiny town, um, Aix-en-Provence. And I met this couple who immediately um, invited me to their home uh, for, for lunch. Now, little did I know that when they invited me to their home, to have lunch, that they're home with two hours away. <laughs> so we get into the car, and we drive two hours away, and we went from um, the little town, which is uh, near Marseille, and we ended up here. They live in a mountain village called Noyais-Sarre-Jabron, and actually, they don't even live in that town. Like Where they live, they don't even get mail, so they have to go to Noyais-Sarre-Jabron to get mail, but they actually live on top. Not quite where the snow is, but right before that. Um, and so I ended up um, meeting them and spending every weekend with them during my time in France because they had the most fascinating stories and they wanted me to spend time with them and, and hear about their stories and um, catch their grasshoppers, but that's a story for another time. And so this couple, Albert and Nicole Diasis, um, were the most amazing couple I had ever met. Um, never, ever, ever before that, despite the fact that I had wonderful spiritual parents and, you know, many other spiritual examples before me, never had I met a couple that exemplified service to God and love and devotion to each other like this couple. Albert would have a special chair for his wife. I accidentally sat on it one day and he was like, no, you have to get up. That's my wife's chair. (laughs) He adored his wife and he treated her with such love and respect and of course, therefore, the children did as well. And their, their partnership in service to others was amazing. He had oh, not always been a Christian. He had grown up an, an atheist. Um, and he was a very successful architect. In fact, Aix-en-Provence, where I was doing my uh, summer internship, he had built, he had designed several of the, of the famous buildings there. But he had met some Christian neighbors he didn't know they were Christian at first. They invited him over for a meal. Eventually, he learned they were Christian and he said, oh, 
bah, Christianity. But he thought, you know what? I should know the enemy. So then he read the Bible. But as he read the Bible, the power of God touched his heart. He actually became a Christian. And when he became a Christian, he and Nicole both actually became Christians. And they said, you know what? The, the principles that are shared in this Bible, the commands that Jesus commands us to do, he, he decided, I'm, I want to do that wholeheartedly. And he, you know, previously his life as an architect, he was very busy, overworked, etc. He said, you know what? I don't want that. And so he actually um, got another degree in, in organic agricultural farming. He bought a chunk of the mountain. Like, I can't even point it out to you because I, I couldn't exactly find it on Google Maps. But he bought a chunk of the mountain, built his own house there. And they moved up there and they farmed, had cows, had chickens. Um, and he built this house so big with so many rooms because he wanted to host different people. And in fact, one year they kept count of how many people they had sleeping in their house. And they had over a thousand. A thousand over a thousand people had stayed at their house. Who are these people? Some of them are runaways. Some of them were people with, with illnesses. Some of them were people who just wanted a holiday up in the mountains. Because this is um, basically the bottom of the French Alps. Um, beautiful area. And so they just had different people streaming through. One of the groups of people they had were convicts. The council had decided to try an experiment. They were going to send a group of convicts to stay with Albert and Nicole. And they would work on the farm. And Albert and Nicole would feed them and, you know, as an experiment. Well, Albert, um, you know, had them on the upstairs, second floor, and Albert was always doing Bible studies, and he was doing Bible studies, and he didn't realize the window was open, upstairs, and he had his Bible study on, on, you know, on Jesus and on Nicodemus, and he talked about John three sixteen, that uh, God so loved the world that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Then, uh, you know, the Bible study ended, evening came, he went upstairs to bring dinner to the convicts who were upstairs. And one of the convicts, when Albert brought him to dinner, grabbed his arms. Now, you can imagine, um, this particular convict had been a murderer. And so you can imagine Albert was a bit startled uh, when he grabbed his arms. And he stared, he grabbed him and he pulled him to him, the strong man. Pulled him to him and stared him in the eyes and said, is that true? And Albert was a bit startled and said, what is true? What do you mean? And he said, you said, whoever. In French, it's quiconque. He said, quiconque. Is that true? And Albert still didn't know what he was talking about. What do you you mean? What what are you talking about? And he said, you said, whoever. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Is that true? Whoever? And now Albert understood. He said, yes, it's true, whoever. And the man said, even me? Even me? And Albert said, yes, even you. Kikonk, whoever. And the man, this, you know, convict, this murderer, this big man, rough and tough, started just tears streaming down his face. And had Bible studies with Albert and later became a pastor. Have you ever meditated on that verse and looked at that one word? Whoever. How about the rest of the words? You look, you look at that verse. For God. Not just a friend, 
God, the creator of the universe, for God so loved, not just tolerated, not just liked, loved the world. Notice it doesn't say God so loved the good people, for God so loved the ones who, you know, did what he wanted, for God so loved, you know, the, the ones in this area. No, God so loved the world, the entire world that he gave. No one took it from him. No one demanded God gave. He gave his one and only son. And that doesn't mean literal son there. That's a a figurative uh, meaning that means his unique son. Jesus was the unique uh, person of the Godhead who had volunteered and said, I'm going to go die. But God the Father had to let him go. Can you imagine someone that you love the most in the world and saying, yeah, go ahead, I'll let you go and experience the kind of torture and the kind of death that you're going to have to experience. That whoever, even you, even me, whoever believes in him, not whoever jumps through the hoops, not whoever does all the right things, not whoever has the right credentials. No, whoever believes, that's it, believes in him, shall not die. You know, everyone, no matter how brave, um, is going to be a little bit afraid of death, especially when the time comes, right? Most of us are young, we might not worry about it much, but when the time comes, it's a frightening thing. But God says, you shall not die. You shall only sleep. For those of you who believe in Jesus, death is like a sleep because you're going to then have eternal life. Not just more life, eternal life. What does it mean to have eternal life? Can you imagine having eternity, not this kind of life, but eternity without pain, without sorrow, no more goodbyes, eternal life. Meditating on the Word of God is taking the words, imagining the story, paying attention to the detail of what God is sharing. Not taking things for granted, but slowing down, pausing, being silent, and saying, God, what is your message for me with this verse? I've come up with a little acronym for spending time in the desert. The D is for disconnect. It's so easy for us to be swallowed by the connections we have today. You know, whether it's our phones, whether it's our laptops, whether it's the people who live in our home. It's so, it's so hard to disconnect. But we have to disconnect in order to connect with God and give Him our undivided attention. And I think that's what that one day a week, that Sabbath experience, why it's so special. Because on that day, on the 24 hours, you are disconnecting from your normal routine, from the work, from the TV, from the shopping, from, you know, and just disconnect to connect. But you do that on a daily basis as well. The E is for engaging in prayer, right? Sharing your potential with God, um, talking to him as to a friend, but also silencing your mind. Sometimes we pray, dear God, blah, 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 then done. And then we get up and we don't feel refreshed because we haven't spent time just being still. Silence our mind. And that's whole hard. I know because my mind, you know, I'll be like, oh, I have to do this. Oh, I have to talk to this person. And, you know, I start going through the to-do list in my mind. 
And so sometimes what helps is having some quiet music to listen to during that silent silence in your mind portion. So, you know, have a song. Maybe it's a classical song or maybe it's a, a song that you like. Just have that on to silence your mind. And then experience the Word of God. Meditate, right? Just don't take a small bite, one verse, a few verses, and just think about and imagine and experience the story. Rest and remember His love. I don't think a quiet time with God is is ever complete until you just pause and think about all the blessings in your life um, and just how God has blessed and loved you. And think about um, how grateful, really, we we need to be. And then finally, just thank and trust him. Now that you've been refreshed, say, okay, I can face whatever comes. Micah, do your best. I'm going to face the day, right? Um, and, you know, this is just a little acronym to help you remember, but there's, there's so many ways that we can do this. Um, for those of you who are kind of like, well, where do I start? I don't know how to meditate. I, um, you know, I think the best is reading the Bible, but to help you kind of get into the practice of getting mining things from the Bible, there are some uh, resources that I'm recommending to you. Um, there's some free apps nowadays. It's great because we ha- we can have them right in our um, phones or um, you know our laptops or whatever. Um, I just want to point out. Last year, Celia Kemp had preached a sermon about the desert and about spending time with God, and she actually wrote um, a series of forty days of, of Bible studies. Um, and so there's a free app that you can you can download to read her, what she she has to say. Spirit Renew is another app that has um, kind of not really so much devotional thoughts, but more stories that different people have written. Um, and then there's an, uh, an app called Cyber School 4 that actually is Bible study guides um, that go through different topics. And there's many, many more. Um, I've just listed a few up there for you. There's a promise in Isaiah 43 where God says, See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. If you feel like a desert in your soul today, if you feel spiritually withered and dry, I want to promise you, give you hope that God can create streams in the desert place. He can provide the Holy Spirit in such an abundant flow that not only will it nourish your soul, but you will become a spring of a fountain of water spring up into everlasting life so that you can actually bring nourishment to others. In The Little Prince, one of my favorite scenes is when the little prince and the, and the pilot, the narrator, they're walking looking for water to drink. And they finally find a well. And the little prince pulls the pulley to raise, um, to raise the bucket. And he says, do you hear, said the little prince, we have wakened the well and it is singing. I did not want him to tire himself with the rope. Leave it to me, I said, it is too heavy for you. I hoisted the bucket slowly to the edge of the well and sent it, sent it there, happy, tired as I was over my achievement. The song of the pulley was still in my ears, and I could see the sunlight shimmer in the still trembling water. I'm thirsty for this water, said the little prince. Give me some of it to drink. And I understood what he had been looking for. I raised the bucket to his lips. He drank, his eyes closed. It was as sweet as some special festival treat. This water was indeed a different thing from ordinary nourishment. Its sweetness was born of the walk under the stars, the song of the pulley, the effort of my arms. It was good for the heart, like a present. 
When I was a little boy, the lights of the Christmas tree, the music of the midnight mass, the tenderness of smiling faces used to make up so the radiance of the gifts I received. The men where you live, said the little prince, raised 5,000 roses in the same garden, and they did not find in it what they're looking for. They do not find it, I replied. And yet what they're looking for could be found in one single rose or in a little water. Yes, that's true, I said. And the little prince added, but the eyes are blind. One must look with the heart. I want to remind you that the eternal things are invisible. And that means we do have to look a little bit harder. And it means we don't look with our eyes. It means we look with our hearts. So I want to encourage you that in 2016, it's already mid-February, right? Let's spend that quiet time with God. Let's disconnect from the things. And it doesn't have to be long, Maybe 15 minutes, start out 15 minutes and just disconnect, engage in prayer, right? Have that silent time um, where you listen to God. Encounter and experience the word of God. Rest and remember his promise and love and thank and trust him for what is to come. And I hope and pray that as you experience that desert experience with God, and he sends those oases, and he sends those wells, and he sends those streams of water, that we will experience not only the revival in our own hearts, but that our church um, in this city can bring a, can be that oasis and be that place that those dying of thirst can come and taste and see and know that the Lord is good.